Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you'd like to follow along with me, you can do so by turning to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 32 through 52. You'll find it on page 846 and 847 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed for you there in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. Well, I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's great to have you with us. Uh, My name's Sean Slate. I'm the pastor here, and we're so glad to have you with us this morning because we know that there are a million different things that you could be doing this morning. For instance, you could be on your way back to Athens. Uh, Good riddance to you. Uh, But, uh, you know, just kidding. We're uh, really thankful if you've stuck around for a little bit longer to worship with us. We're really glad that you're here. I uh, hope you've enjoyed your time in Knoxville. You seem to. Uh, also, uh, others of you, you could, uh, you could be on your way uh, home. Many of you students could be on your way home for Thanksgiving break and skipping classes on Monday, or your classes were canceled on Monday. Or you could be over at the Gypsy Circus for the medieval festival for some good old-fashioned jousting and foam broadsword fighting and maybe some axe throwing. But you're not doing any of those things. You're here uh, with us this morning. I really do want to thank you for coming. And there really is nothing better that you could do with your time than worship Jesus and consider his claims upon your life and think about the power and the kindness of his salvation. And so I do want to thank you. Welcome to Redeemer. What is Redeemer? Well, Redeemer is a church. And what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. And he's entered into the world to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week as his people, we gather together in his name to worship him so that we might learn to rest in the love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love, we then become a people who love uh, to hang out with one another, watch TV, watch football, like hit each other with broadswords that are foam, uh, do all kinds of things like that. But what we really love to do is gather together uh, and read the Bible and pray together so that we can remind each other of that great love that God has for us in Jesus. And as we rest in his love and as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who delight to gather together in service so that together we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University in Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire earth, right? That's who we are. We're a people who are trying to learn how to love God. We're trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we're in this series that we've entitled Questions God Asks. And we think that this is really important because all of us have questions. We all have questions about God. We all have questions about ourselves. We all have questions about the world. And in God's mercy and in his kindness, he invites us to bring those questions to him. But it is also true that as we read the Bible, one of the things that we see is that God has some questions for us. And so we want to take time. We want to look at these questions. We want to consider them. And so this morning, we're going to look at this question that Jesus asked, what do you want me to do for you? 
All right, what do you want me to do for you? So with that in mind, let's look together at Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 32 through 52. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. They came to Jericho, and he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Heavenly Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, we're thankful that you are a God who is not hidden, uh, nor are you silent, but you are one who delights, loves to make yourself known. And you've done so uh, in your word by your Holy Spirit, and ultimately you've made yourself known in the person and work of Jesus. And so it's our prayer now that as we attend unto your word, that you, by your spirit and by your mercy and by your kindness, you would attend unto us, that we would see lovely and beautiful things of you in this, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a great question uh, that's in this passage, right? What do you want me to do for you? Right? What do you want me to do 
for you? And the answer that you would give to this question is going to depend on the way you see the person who is asking it. The way you answer this question will depend upon the way you see the person who is asking it. So, for instance, if Coach Heupel were to come in here this morning and say, what do you want me to do for you? We would say, we want you to win, right? If uh, Jimmy, our contractor, were to come in here and say, what do you want me to do for you? We would say, we want you to renovate this building for less than $3 million in under a year. Uh, If your waiter comes up to your table and says, what would you like me to do for you? You would say, oh, I'd like some more water and maybe like uh, some broccoli for the table. You know, we're trying to have a good time here. So please, something like that. But uh, what if Jesus, right, the creator and the sustainer uh, and the redeemer of the world, Right. What if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, were to come to you and say, what do you want me to do for you? How would you respond? Well, it seems to me that uh, our response is going to depend upon the way we see him. Do you see Jesus as a means to your own success? Or do you see Jesus as the one who frees you to serve? How do you see Jesus? How do you cry out to Jesus? Do you cry out to him, make me successful? Or do you cry out to him, make me a servant? And that's what I want to consider this morning, this idea of success or service. And so let's begin with success, this thing that all of us are familiar with and want, uh, and then we'll move on to service for success. As we begin, I think it's really important for us to recognize how James and John see Jesus. I want you to look at what they say in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, I want you to think about this statement that they're making. They're saying, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Essentially, what they're saying to Jesus is this, Jesus, you exist to give us what we want. If any of you have been in one of my Bible studies, you know that we always begin with icebreakers. Some of you love the icebreakers. Most of you hate my icebreakers. Uh, But our question this week was this. If your pet was able to speak, what would it say to you? Right? If your pet was able to speak, what would it say to you? Now, our our friend Fred Gordon, who isn't here today, uh, he had a great comment. He said, well, if I had a dog, he would say... You feed me, you love me, you take care of me, you play with me, you give me a place to live and sleep, you give me everything I need, you must be a god, right? But if I had a cat, he would say to me, you feed me, you love me, you take care of me, you play with me, you give me a place to live and sleep, you give me everything I need, I must be a god. Uh, And I thought that's really profound, right? Uh, Because one of the things that we realize when we think about uh, culture and history is that traditional cultures are typically dogs, In modern cultures like our own, our own secular culture, we're basically cats. And so traditional cultures think that we exist, right, to serve uh, the gods, while modern cultures think that the gods exist to serve us. So a long time ago, um, in a place not too far away, when we were culturally and philosophically and religiously and intellectually being formed, we were taught basically, that God exists to give us what we want. 
In 2005, uh, the sociologist Christian Smith conducted a survey, and then he wrote this very influential book that probably many of you have read on the religious and spiritual lives of teenagers, and the book's entitled Soul Searching. Uh, now, I know it was written in 2005, but what's really interesting, I know that sounds like a long time ago, but what that means is that if you're 31 to 35, which is many of you, if you're 31 to 35, he was studying you. And as he was studying you, by studying you, he was also then studying what people in my generation were teaching you. And by studying you, he was also studying what most of you are now teaching your children. And his conclusion was that the dominant American religion is not Christianity. And it's not secularism. It's not Mormonism. It's not Judaism. It's not Islam. The, the prevailing religion in America, he says, is moralistic therapeutic deism. And he says, whatever denomination you're in, whatever tradition you're from, whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal, regardless of your creed, Americans are basically moralistic therapeutic deists. We're moral. We're moralistic. And what he means by this is what one kid said in response. He said, religion is where you try to be good. And if you're not good, then you should just try to get better. That's all. And being moral is being the kind of person that other people will like, fulfilling one's personal potential and not being socially disruptive or interpersonally obnoxious. So think about this. What, he said, what is morality? Morality is basically trying really hard and trying a little bit harder and then trying to fit in. We're moralistic. And then he goes on to say, not only are we moralistic, we're therapeutic. And, and what he means by that is when we think about religion, religion isn't so much about repentance or saying your prayers or going to church or serving the divine, loving God, you know, developing character through suffering, enjoying God or loving your neighbor. Religion is primarily meant to be therapeutic. And therefore, the primary goal of religion is to help you feel good and to help you feel happy about yourself and about your life. Right? We're moralistic. We're therapeutic. And then he says we're deistic. Not necessarily 18th century deism, but what he means by this is that, that God is distant, that God doesn't speak, that God doesn't make himself known. And though God is a God who created and controls everything, he remains relationally distant from us. So as one of the responders said this, he said, God is an overall ruler who controls everything. So like if I'm depressed or something and things aren't going my way, I blame it on him. We're moral, therapeutic deists. Now, does that sound familiar to any of you? The way you or the way any of your friends think about or see God? And so Christian Smith sort of summarizes all of this, and he says, Americans basically see God as the combination of a divine butler and cosmic therapist. He's always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. And then the sad part of all this, he says, and this is what we've called Christianity. So in other words, what he's saying is that the fundamental way in which we as Americans see God is through this question, verse 35, right? We want you to do for us whatever we ask you to do. And we want you to do whatever we ask you to do because that is your job. 
And I think because most of us grew up seeing God in this way, this is why Christianity has become a lot like the last season of Ted Lasso. It's no longer interesting. And it's no longer interesting uh, because uh, he's no longer the person that we tuned in to see, right? But here's the deal. Maybe uh, we never really saw him for who he truly is. Maybe we've always been blind to who he really is. And maybe we need God by his mercy to give us sight, to open our eyes, to see him for who he is. And this is the case for the disciples, right? The disciples prove that they're blind. And we see this in their request. I want you to look at verse 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And so do you hear what they're asking? They want Jesus to give them the seats of power. And so you can think about it this way. If this, if this was a university setting, they'd be talking to the president and they'd say, President, we want you to make us the chancellor and the provost. If, it, if this was politics, which is what they thought it was, uh, mixed with a little bit of religion, they were asking to be number one and number two. They wanted to be the vice president and the secretary of state. Now, what makes this request so heinous is that Jesus has been telling them, he's already told them three times, in chapter 8, in chapter 9, and again in chapter 10, verse 33, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. So I want you to think about what he's been telling them. This is what he's been telling them over the last three chapters. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned. I'm going to be mocked and flogged and spit on, and I am going to be killed. And so in chapter 8, Peter pulls Jesus aside, and he rebukes Jesus for this. And then in chapter 9, after this, the disciples then gather together, and they have a caucus over who is the best. In other words, what they're wanting to know is who is going to take his place. And then we come to chapter 10, and James and John, they pull Jesus aside, and they say, go ahead and reveal your succession plan, that we are the ones who will take your place. And then I want you to notice in verse 41, when the ten heard about it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, to be indignant means to be, like, utterly frustrated. It means to be angry. It means to be mad. And they were mad at James and John. And why were they mad at James and John? They were mad at James and John because James and John wanted to sit in the seats of power over them. Right? Now, before we sort of like make fun of James and John, I want us to be honest with the fact that I think we're a lot like them. Because like them, what we really want is for Jesus to give us what we want. And what is it that we usually want? We usually want success and power. What we want is for Jesus to help us win at whatever game it is we're playing in the moment. Now, if we listen to our prayers, you'll hear this. If you just sort of catalog your prayers and think about what you pray about and how you pray, oftentimes our prayers sound like this. Help me to win. Help me to win at sports. Help me to win at parenting. 
Help me to win at work. Help me to win in dating. Help me to win with my health, with my wealth, in politics, and at life. That's not wrong to pray about some of these things, but I think it's important for us to consider what it is, if this is what we normally are praying about, what does it reveal about our desires? What is it that we reveal, what does it reveal about the way we see God? Is God just a technique for you to use to get the life that you want? Is God your secret weapon and you have him on your side to help you win? And when we think about our prayers, are our prayers these pleas to God to make us successful? Or are they pleas to God that he would make us servants? What are we pleading to God for? You know, Henry Nouwen writes about this in his beautiful little book called In the Name of Jesus. If you haven't read it, I really would commend it to you. It's short. I have a copy. You can borrow it from me if you'd like to. But he says this. He asks this question. What makes the temptation of power so seemingly irresistible? And he says maybe it, it is that power offers an easy substitute for the hard task of love. It seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to own life than to love life. Jesus asked, do you love me? While we ask, can I sit at your right hand and your left in your kingdom? Ever since the snake said, the day you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open and you will be like God's knowing good from evil. We have been tempted to replace love with power. Jesus lives that temptation in the most agonizing way from the desert to the cross. The long, painful history of the church is the history of people over and over and over again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. Those who resisted this temptation to the end and thereby give us hope are the true saints. And what he's saying is that the witness of the church has often been that we are a people who long for power and success rather than to become servants. We want success rather than service. And I think the disciples are just honest about this, and they're just stating, I think, what many of us are really afraid to admit about ourselves, that we want uh, power, we want control, and we want to lead. But we do not want to follow, we do not want to serve, and we find it really, really difficult to love. But I want you to notice Jesus' response in verse 42. And Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. And if you think about this image, what's happening here is that the disciples are actually struggling to see Jesus for who he is. And when they look at Jesus, what they see is a man who's competent, a man who knows his stuff. They see a man who's successful, a man who's promised to be powerful, a man who will be victorious. And when they look at him, they look at him who is as one who will lead them into that success, who will lead them into that victory, who will lead them, as the kids say, into their platform. They want Jesus to platform them. 
But Jesus says, guys, I need you to come here. I need you to listen up. The Gentiles want power. And they use their power and they lord it over you. And you don't like that. Why do you want to be like that? And he says, it should not be so among us. And it should not be so among us because that is not the way of God's kingdom. We have been called not to be served, but we have been called to serve. And so Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you really want to be great, if you really want to succeed, then you must become a servant of all. But why would that be the case? I want you to think again about the request. Uh, what do they want? Right? They want to rule with Jesus. And then they want to be the next leaders and rulers of the kingdom. Right? So if you're going to do that, then what must be true? You must learn the way of the kingdom. If you want to lead with him, then you must serve like him. And that's what he's saying in verse 43. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying this, like, you have been called to follow me. And you've been called to follow me, not just in victory, but you have actually been called to follow me in my way of victory. And I think this is really important for us uh, as Christians in the modern age, because what this is saying to us is we're not so much called to moral, ethical, political, or cultural winning. We are called to something so much harder. Something so much more difficult. We are called to follow Jesus in service to our neighbors. And this is exactly what the disciples could not see because what they saw was power and victory and success. They did not see the service to which they had been called. Right? And this is why Jesus then asked the very same question that he asked the disciples. He then goes on and he asked it to the blind man. And what he's showing through the contrast of these questions, to the contrast of these people, is it's the disciples who are blind. It's the blind man who actually sees. You see, the question comes back in verse 51, what do you want me to do for you? And this is really important because usually when we read the Bible, if you see it in your Bible, we don't put these two passages together. They're broken up by all the headings. And we think this is a different story. But the questions that are being repeated are setting this story off as a, a particular pericope, as a set say, this is the point. This is the story. The disciples do not see what the blind man actually sees. And so the point is this, that we need God's mercy to help us see that we are called not to success, but we have been called to service. And I want you to look at how this works itself out, verse 46. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, uh, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus the son, uh, of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so I want you to uh, hear this cry. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I just want to pause here. I just want to say this. That's the cry of, of a Christian. That's what Christians cry out. Jesus, have mercy on me. And I think this is really important because as Christians, we must remember that we are the objects of God's mercy. 
And because we are the objects of God's mercy, we must then enter into the world boasting of his mercy, not our success. And this is radical because I think most of us are ashamed of our need for mercy. We think it makes us small. We think it makes us insignificant. And we tend to think that the greatest witness we could have for God is to be successful and to be big. And if people just see my success, then they will see the God who is behind my success. But maybe our greatest testimony has nothing to do with us. Maybe our greatest testimony is that God is merciful. And this is what the blind man sees. And so this is why he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then I want you to notice how the people respond to him when he says this, verse 48, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. And by telling this man to be silent, what they were saying is, hey, don't bother the man. Don't bother Jesus. Jesus doesn't have time for you. You're sick. You're broken. You're hurting. You're blind. You're nothing. And therefore, Jesus has no need for you. And because Jesus is a great man, he should hang out with great men. Because great men don't hang out with people like you. But I want you to notice Jesus' response in verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And I think that this is beautiful because what Jesus is doing here is he hears this cry for mercy. He says, that's it. Somebody gets it. Bring the man to me. Now, something really powerful is happening here because throughout the Gospel of Mark, people have been giving titles to Jesus. They've called him the Messiah, they've called him the Christ, they've called him the Son of Man. And usually, when these titles are given to Jesus, Jesus sort of stops them and he says, Hey, look, be quiet, don't tell anybody. And that's exactly what we would expect here if we're reading through uh, the, the Gospel. We would think, Oh, he would call him and say, Hey, don't tell anybody. But Jesus says something very different here. He, he calls this blind man who has cried out to him, son of David. And this is important because what this man is saying is, Jesus, you are the royal king who was prophesied of of old. You are the great, victorious, successful king that God said would come. You are of the line of David and you will rule and you will reign over all things. And you are the one who will usher in the day of peace. You are the long-hoped-for, victorious, successful king. And that would be consistent with what all the crowds are thinking. But what is interesting is that the blind man follows up the confession of victory with a cry for mercy. And he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And this is unique because everyone else was wanting to participate in the king's power or the king's victory, or the king's success. But what does Bartimaeus want? He wants the king's mercy, right? And so rather than telling the blind man to be silent, what does he say? He says, your faith has made you well. And by saying your faith has made you well, he is saying, you've seen it. You get it. You understand who I am. And the point is this, is the blind man is the one who actually saw Jesus most clearly. Because what he saw is that it is God's victory that comes through God's mercy. And this is why uh, Jesus repeats himself over and over again in verse 44. He says, Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
And in saying this, what he's saying is uh, to his disciples, he's saying, hey guys, look, I came for those who can't do anything for themselves. He's saying, I came for those who are weak and wounded, who are sick and who are sore, who are blind and who are deaf, uh, who are lost and who are alone. And yes, I have come to rule, but my rule comes through my mercy. And so this is why Jesus stops and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, I want you to do what I cannot do. I want to see. And what's amazing is that if you do a survey of of children's uh, Bible books or Bible stories, when you come to this story, the best ones always do this. Jesus heals the man and you turn the page and what do you see? You see the face of Jesus. It's the first thing the man would see. And what this is telling us is that it is the blind man who actually sees Jesus. And then I want you to notice what happens, verse 52. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Now the question that a lot of people want to think about is this, is what does it mean to follow Jesus on the way? Well, in one sense, it's just literal. It means that he got up, he followed Jesus, he was on the path, he was on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus. But in another sense, what this means is that Jesus, or that the blind man, followed in the way of Jesus. He became a disciple of Jesus. He took the way of Jesus upon his life. And what is interesting is that both come together when we think about where Jesus was going. And where does the text tell us Jesus was going? He's going to Jerusalem. And why was he going to Jerusalem? Verse 45 tells us, in order to give his life as a ransom for many. Why was Jesus on the way to Jerusalem? To show mercy. To show mercy for sinners like us. Why was Jesus going on his way to Jerusalem? He was going to serve. You see, Jesus is trying to show us through this text that the way of the cross is actually the way of victory. Jesus is trying to show us here that the way of success is actually the way of service. And what he's trying to show us here is that the way of life is actually the way of death. And that's what this table uh, is all about, because this table is God's gift to help us see Jesus. Not just to hear about him, but to help us see him more clearly in this table. And to see that the way of Jesus is the way of mercy. That the way of God's glory is the way of his service. That Jesus is the one who gave his life as a ransom for our sins. And to be a ransom, it means that it's the blood price. He paid his blood to free us. And to free us not to just do whatever it is we want to do. Not to serve ourselves. But what did he free us for? So that we might become who he made us to be. That we might become those who would become servants. You see, Jesus has freed us to serve because we've been served by God. Jesus has freed us to love because we're already loved by God. Jesus has freed us to be merciful because God is full of mercy. And maybe most importantly, Jesus frees us to die. And he frees us to die because Jesus defeated death through his service. And Jesus was raised up from death and into glory. So that now all who follow Jesus on the way of service unto death 
we will by his mercy then be raised up at the resurrection into his glorious kingdom.